0: Only those born guilty recognize innocence for what it is, the rarest thing in the universe, and the most precious.
1: To me once again to drive back the night, an Andromeda series podcast. I'm Ryan Mizako, and with me, as always, is
0: Ethan Maistree. Mm, I am the truth become manifest. I am the darkness become light. Okay, so I, are you are you into wayism? Oh yeah. Well, yeah, I didn't know that. Sure, yeah, it's a kind of a family thing. My grandfather, really. Oh, so this is kind of a, a recent thing then? Oh uh, no, it was uh, before I was born. But I remember the day,
1: yeah, that he he joined you remember oh okay so some kind of a like a genetic
0: memory sort of thing yeah yeah okay well that's pretty cool yeah it it kind of is um there's problems when it comes to my parents though
1: yeah i bet this is episode 18 the devil take the hindmost yeah so uh there's a lot going on here before we get to any of that ethan you have anything for us i absolutely
0: do yeah, this is an episode written by Ashley Edward Miller and Zach Snitz. Uh We have several uh, guest stars for this particular episode. We had Mark Holden, who plays Thaddeus Blake, the uh, the wayist mm-hmm. in here. That's the good friend of Rev Bim. Uh, he has many credits in TV and film, including some minor roles that he's had recently in World War Z and as uh, part of the Murk Alabama crew in the movie Captain Phillips. Interestingly enough about Mark Holden, he is one of uh, six children. He's the son... Of a former admiral of the Nigerian Navy, I did not even realize Nigeria had a navy, but uh his father was an admiral of the N- Nigerian Navy. His name was Augustus Akomo and he served as Nigeria's de facto vice president from nineteen eighty six to nineteen ninety three hmm. so I just thought that was some interesting background for mm-hmm. this particular guest star, Mark Holden, that we have in this uh episode. We also had uh david david palfrey uh he plays sorry the uh the slaver leader okay. He has, uh, again, many TV credits, including recurring roles as Anubis on the Stargate SG-1 television show. Oh, okay. And uh, a few recurring roles in uh, the X-Files series also. And this isn't the only time we're going to see him. He will return later in Season 4 of Andromeda for a, a different role. Oh, I was going to uh, say. He's not going to be the flavor <laughs> captain again, yeah. <laughs> and then we have uh, Moya O'Connell. She plays Tiama. And the interesting thing about this actress is there's only eight credits in IMDb, the IMDb database, uh, to, to this particular actress. However, she is very busy in stage theater mm-hmm. and uh, continues to be so. But she also has a, a family and things like that as well. Um, and then interestingly enough, her character, Tiana She has a family of Magog, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, uh-huh. in fiction. Um, not sure what her actual children are in real life. <laughs> We're getting ahead of ourselves. They're little devils, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. Uh, so, Tiamat uh, is, is her character name. It's a variation of the name Tiamat. And this is significant in the ancient Sumerian mythology, because Tiamat was the mother dragon who is killed, and then the universe is created from her dismembered body. So, oh. kind of an interesting parallel between mm-hmm. this the story, of course, and, and uh And the mythology of the Sumerian culture, the ancient Sumerian culture. Uh, And also, this episode finds a lot of parallels in Star Trek, uh, the original series episode called A Private Little War. I don't know if you're familiar with that one, right? I am. Okay, there you go. And and that's in which Kirk uh, provides weapons Mm -hmm. to the hill people of uh, Neural in order to counter the Klingon-backed tribes Mm -hmm. that they're fighting against. So, yeah, we have a lot of parallels between Star Trek and ancient mythology and some interesting uh, guest stars for this one. Anyway, that's what I had here. Great.
1: Um, I guess we know everything about this episode now except for actually what happened. So, Ethan, if you wouldn't mind, I believe it is your turn Why don't you give us a rundown of this episode in The Devil Take the Hindmost. What happened?
0: Well, Ryan, it's time to demonstrate the humanitarian side of the new system's commonwealth. And the crew of Andromeda is very busy preparing for a major relief mission. Rev Bim is contacted by an old wayist friend, though, Thaddeus Blake. He's living on a colony called Serendipity. The colonists, called Hajira, are under attack from slavers, and he's requested the help of Rev and his powerful friends, Sensing that this situation is going to call for a man of action, Dylan takes Rev on the Maru and heads for Serendipity, leaving Becca in charge of Andromeda and the relief effort. At the colony, Blake takes Dylan and Rev on a three-hour tour, how long? A three-hour tour of the peaceful settlement. The colonists have virtually no defenses or weapons to speak of. It seems that Blake and most of the colonists are simply going to allow their faith to carry them through this crisis. Rev explains to Dylan that Blake is the man that converted him on King Fisher to Wayism, after Rev witnessed him walk into a horde of Magog armed only with his faith. Dylan explains to the Hajira that he didn't bring an army to fight for them, but instead he offers to teach them to fight for themselves. On Andromeda, Becca is feeling restless and is looking for something to do. Rami suggests that she question Tyr and find out why he and his mercenary friends are stealing relief supplies. Dylan now begins teaching the Hegira to fight with weapons that he brought along for them to use. Blake objects to this action, and the reason why soon becomes clear. Rev learns that the Hegira have a genetic memory. They are able to pass down specific memories from one generation to the next. Blake feels that this ability is too precious a gift, and it's only going to be destroyed by the violence that will be visited upon them if the Hegira are taught to fight. Dylan maintains that this is a choice for the Hegira to make themselves. The Hajira choose to fight, but in his own zeal to preserve the Hajira's innocence, Blake destroys the weapons that Dylan has brought. Becca now confronts Tyr about the stolen supplies. Tyr explains that he's only trying to make the mission worth the mercenaries' time, and they do need their help. He offers to cut Becca in on the deal, if she'll allow his little side operation to proceed. Becca, not above making a little black in a gray area, agrees and later make sure that Andromeda ignores what's happening in Cargo Bay 11. Rev speaks with Blake, reminding him that it was he who contacted Rev and Dylan for help, and Dylan does things his own way. He also points out that Blake's action of taking the choice away from the Hegira to fight was an act of violence unto itself. Meanwhile, Dylan's making friends with the locals, and the Hegira leader, Tiama is taking a particular interest in Dylan. She is concerned about Dylan's memory being preserved for the future, and so she offers to make that memory a bit more permanent by bearing Dylan's children. Dylan is flattered, but declines the offer. Besides, he's not really expecting to die anytime soon anyway. The slavers appear, and not expecting to find the colony ready to fight, they instead try to make a deal with Dylan to just take a few Hajira as slaves and go. A deal that Dylan declines. The situation is about to get ugly when true ugliness shows itself. Rev steps out of the trees, and seeing a Magog present, this really throws the slavers off their game, and so they leave. But they are not gone long. They return at night, and their intent is not to just capture, but to kill as well. Blake, armed with only his faith, wanders into the melee to speak with the slavers, and is quickly killed. Dylan, Rev, and the Hegira are able to fight off the slavers killing some and angering the slaver leader further. He'll be back to finish them, he promises. In the meantime, the Hegira mourn their losses and consider their future. Tiyama wants to use the slaver's fear of the Magog to their advantage, and she wants to use Rev in that capacity. Rev, though, protests such a plan, claiming that he is not their savior. Feeling the pressure of recent events, Rev Bim goes into the woods to pray, and while doing so, he is ambushed and captured by an unknown assailant. Andromeda is on station and begins their relief effort, but it's a much bigger job than anyone realized, and is going to require additional time to complete. Dylan is going to be on his own for a few weeks longer than expected. Dylan now finds out from Arun, Tiyama's brother, and the new spiritual leader of the Hajarah, that both Rev and Tiyama are missing, so he goes out to look for them. He finds Rev in a cave in the woods, all trussed up. Tiyama, though, has infested herself with Rev's eggs, and she intends to create an army of Magog to protect them. Dylan and Rev are shocked. Tiyama does not know what the Magog are really like. They know that Magog are monsters, and they can't be controlled. They realize that they have one chance. When a Magog is born, it does carry some of its genetic material from its host. If the Magog that are born from Tiyama have the Hajira's genetic memory, then there may be hope. Rev offers to oversee the birth of the Magog to see if this is the case, and he sends Dylan away. Later, the Magog are born, Tiamat is dead, and Rev feeds them with sheep from the area around the village, and they grow very rapidly. Weeks pass, the slavers return, and they attack the village for a third time. This time, though, Dylan has set a trap in the center of the village. He kills some of them, and he takes the Hejara to the cave where Rev is keeping the Magog. The Magog ambush and then kill the slavers, but also begin to attack the Hezira as well. When Dylan and Rev try to stop them, one of the Magog speaks and says that they are just trying to give the rest of the Hajira the same gift that their mother gave them. Arun, though, is prepared to offer himself to be infested, but Rev stops him, saying that he can teach this new race of Magog to guard the Hajira. Their relief mission now complete, Tyr and Becca get together to discuss the side operation. Tyr finds that in the course of the relief effort, Becca has used the supplies that the mercenaries had stolen. He's shocked that she's double-crossed him and the mercenaries, and there's nothing that he can do about it. She informs Tyr that she also heard that he took his share in advance. He owes her. Dylan returns to the Andromeda. Becca says that she's happy to turn command of the Andromeda back over to him, but he tells her that he is proud of what she and Andromeda has accomplished. Andromeda filled him in on all the details. Tyr says that he's intrigued and perhaps a little jealous of the fact that Rev has become the father of an entire race of warrior priests. Rev says that he can understand why Nietzschean would feel that way. But what he's most concerned about is that he saved paradise by introducing the serpent. The end.
1: You know, some babies just have a face that only a Magog father can love.
0: Was that? I've seen things come out of the... The south end of a Northbound animal <laughs> that looked more homely <laughs> than one of those things. Wow! The are Ugly. Yeah, from birth on. Pretty much. I I thought it was quite hilarious, because the uh, the last episode that we had, Fear and Loathing, mm-hmm. uh, we learned a little bit about Nightsiders, mm-hmm. and we learned a little bit about their uh, impact on environments, mm-hmm. yep. and then we have this situation where, what was the name of the planet? Uh, Pythia. Pythias, where this uh, relief effort is is Mm -hmm. having to take place. Um, Apparently, the Pythians, as I understand it, the way Beckett describes, there's problems on the planet because they hired Nightsiders to terraform the planet. Mm -hmm. Uh, Terraforming being where you basically engineer the environment Mm -hmm. on a given system, whatever the case may be. Um, Yeah, Nightsiders do not, from what we've already (laughs) learned, seem like the type of race or or group that you would want engineering your environment that you're going to live in. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So basically, this is a relief effort, but it's also uh, a pity mission. (laughs) Yeah. the Pythians should be pitied. I I think uh,
1: Nightsiders, they would be a good choice to do the demo work. (laughs) There you go. Yeah.
0: Yeah and then call in somebody else. It's basically like saying I don't like this house anymore. Let's hire termites mm-hmm. to do the, to do the demolition work. <laughs> <laughs> but definitely not the construction. Hey Ethan, I got a question.
1: Um, this this planet where we are here. Do do you kind of feel like maybe we've been here before? Um perhaps. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The the forest look Are you referring to the forest? mm mm-hmm. Mhm. The yeah. forest.
1: The shot of the uh, spacecraft landing, the, the,
0: the flash of light landing in the forest. Basically, um, what I'm thinking is most of the planets in this galaxy have been terraformed. And like many houses that are built today, you basically just have one or two different floor plans. <laughs> so the terraforming takes place uh, according to a, a just a kind of a generic pattern. That pattern being BC okay <laughs> in right. British Columbia, okay, so we have what rose in the ashes, mm-hmm. we have that forest, we have uh, a music of a distant drum. yeah, there you go. What was that planet called? I forget now. Was that was that Mobius?: No, 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 no. Mobius was the, with the uh, the architect, right yeah. Okay, no, 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 uh, good grief. Where did that one take place? Uh, we had fishmongers. That's all I remember about it. <laughs> but yeah, I, I see where you're going with this. Mm-hmm. But we're getting some nice views of, of you know, the great Northwest okay. of North America. Okay. Yeah, I haven't been visited there personally, but I feel like I'm getting acquainted with it.
1: Yeah, well, that's what I was saying. It feels like I've been here before.
0: Yeah, there you go. So, uh, Ryan, if you walk in front of gunfire... And, quote, quasi-religious sounding texts. Yeah. Uh, what can you expect to happen?
1: I was expecting the heavens to open up and a bright light to shine forth and maybe some doves or something and kind of just uh, a spirit to come over all of the uh, combatants and uh, just a just a general feeling of love and peace to come over the whole thing. I, f- I figured it was going to be either that or he would get shot and die. Yeah. And one of those things happened. I was absolutely right. One of those things happened.
0: Mm-hmm. Dead. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was. I mean, <clears throat> okay. Walking into a horde of magog, and quoting scripture. I don't know. Mm-hmm. May, what that is maybe something we need to discuss a little bit later. Yeah. The the magog have a spiritual side to them. I'm kind of getting this because the apparently the anointed uh for the mm-hmm. he was a magog
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh rev bim is a converted magog mm-hmm. it seems to me that they have a spiritual side mm-hmm. so perhaps walking into a horde of them and 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 quoting whatever religious text is uh it, you might be able to get somewhere you you might have something to to hold to that you i might i might live through this mm mm-hmm. um uh, Greedy slavers with guns? hmm <clears throat> No. Yeah. <laughs> you can't stop bullets with words. <laughs> you know, it just can't be done. You better hope that robe was bulletproof, and uh, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, Thaddeus Blake was kind of a, I don't know, it, it, he was a unique individual. Yes, he was. Not anymore. <laughs> no longer. And then one other thing that I thought of, mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned it at the outset, Um for most life the moment of birth uh, that's a beautiful thing isn't it <laughs> yes I, I was present yes. for for my my son's birth so i was, was in I. the room well okay. not not your son but <laughs> my, my son. two daughters <laughs> what <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I, I get what you're saying yeah, yeah so, so the moment of birth and it's you know for a person that that isn't uh a father or a mother you seeing it is just it ew you know ew yeah. there's some ew factor yeah But in the moment there, being there, it it is a beautiful thing. Oh, yeah. But this doesn't translate in Magog birthing, does it?
1: Mm. Well, you know what? Maybe it kind of does. Maybe it's sort of the same thing. Because if you think about it, okay, you're talking about the birth of your son and how beautiful that was. I'm sorry. I don't want to be there for that. Um, (laughs) Granted. I was there for the Wouldn't want you there. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for not inviting me. Yeah. Um, I was there for the birth of my two children. I'm not sure many other people would want to see that. True. It's it's one of those if, when you're emotionally attached to the situation, it is a beautiful thing. When you, maybe you're a little further removed, it, like you said, ew. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And
0: but there are those people that have
1: it videoed, and they're just like, "Would you like to see the birth?" I'm not <laughs> friends with any of those people. <laughs> uh. But but Rev Bim seems to kind of. He, he he has a he has a grasp of that though. Because um he's there, he's ready, but he says to to Aaron, mm, this you don't Get want to out. see this. <laughs> yeah. This this isn't for your eyes. You
0: Yeah. Yeah, you gotta go now. Yeah. And then uh Rev Bim sets up for the, the act, uh, the the birthing act, much like the way I imagine a large man at a golden corral gets sent <laughs> to different to a plate of food. <laughs> it was it was very uh very um I don't know the word I'm looking for ferocious. ferocious. There you go. That yeah. that would be yeah. <laughs> yeah, vicious. Yeah. Uh did you watch that episode with headphones on? Yes, I did. And the sound effects? Quite graphic. Yeah. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta admit they, yeah, they, uh, <laughs> they went as far as they could with that. I think it was just sound clips that they got
1: borrowed from uh, National Geographic or something.
0: <laughs> a wildebeest being <laughs>
1: shredded by lions. <laughs> yeah, that was exactly the thought that I had on that. Oh my goodness. So we, we, we learn a lot of things. Um, maybe some things we already kind of knew about. We get them. A much clearer understanding.
0: Some things I think we wish we could forget. <laughs> yeah.
1: But we can't. <laughs> nope. We can't unsee those things. That's why it was not for our eyes. Yeah. Um, but, uh, okay, wayism. Yeah. We, we've we known about wayism. We've seen that this is a thing in this universe, that there are it, – it, it seems to be a very small group, relatively speaking, but there is this group – Of um, of spiritualists or religious uh, people, they call themselves the Wayists. We don't really, to this point, know exactly what their doctrine is or what any of their faith is based
0: upon. Right, but we—if I can interject—we do have an idea of of kind of what they're drawing from, and it seems to be kind of a little bit of everything out of Earth culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because what does Aaron refer to when he's talking to Rev? Saint Buddha, Saint Peter, Saint Mm -hmm. Jesus. You know, it's, it's, Mm -hmm. they've taken all of the different religious figures, the Mm -hmm. major figures, and they've all just, it seems like what they're doing is taking it and just kind of lumping it together. Mm -hmm. And it, it all contributes to, the way, you know? right? Yeah. So, yeah, it is kind of interesting the way they've portrayed this, so far.
1: which is something that we didn't know before, truly, really, as far as what the the origins were. Yeah. And as you uh, already mentioned earlier, you know that the the first wayist they call the anointed, he was a magog, um, and learned the way from uh,
0: listening to one of the hosts of his eggs. I love the way Rev. At the conclusion of Aaron's description, mm-hmm. uh, and how sanitized was that, <laughs> and, and Rev kind of tips his hat to the fact that it is sanitized in that reaction, well, that's one way of interpreting <laughs> what happened. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. Yeah. yeah. So let me ask you this. Uh, we, we have this concept of genetic memory that we're introduced to. Okay. And I don't think this is going to come in, into play really at, at any any further episodes. Okay. But uh, genetic memory, mm-hmm. good or bad? Yes. <laughs> uh, if you're looking for a slave race, awesome. <laughs> Teach one, all of them know from then on. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so that is both an advantage and disadvantage, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, the, the way that the, the, the characters were describing, you know, that's a really cool thing. and And it really... Like in in a marriage, over time, as you build memories together, you and your spouse, you grow closer together. As you share those memories, you both have memories that you can reflect back on and reminisce about and and have something to talk about. Mm -hmm. And that seems like kind of the way this group uh, portrays those memories. And, And they're reminiscing about it. It's neat that you have kind of a unified consciousness, um, until it gets to some of those aspects of life <laughs> where privacy is really important, yeah. and mm-hmm. it just seems like wow that it's a it's a neat mechanism, but there it seems like there's some limits to its practicality.
1: It you would have to think that to these people, um, privacy is just not a thing it's it's not something that's important to them it can't be because anything they do they know that their descendants are going to know all about it anything that they think or any way that they feel um if if they ever have any sort of um uh, ulterior motive even i mean it's it's just going to it's all going to come out you know cuz their descendants are either going to carry it on or they're going to out them
0: what the thought that i have though is what are family reunions like <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah. Oh, exactly. You get the, the uncle. Did I ever tell you about the time? Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I know exactly what you're about to say.
0: <laughs> I remember. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. But the the other side of that is there are so many things that this idea, it sounds so cool. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that I always feel so bad about when somebody dies Um, Whether they're somebody that I know or just somebody who's very well accomplished, someone that's very smart, Um, I think of in the fields of science and art, uh, music, things like that, when they die, everything that they have learned dies with them. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyone who, when you think of musicians who died young, tragically, what material did they have that they were simmering that never made it to the studio yeah. never even made it to uh, to a uh a cassette recording or anything you know yeah uh, it's, it's just lost well now you have these further generations that can take whatever they had learned up to a certain point and they're able to carry it on and that's fascinating to me yeah i mean when you think about science, basically every scientist is starting over. And then they have to take courses and try to catch up on what somebody before them had already observed, researched, and then recorded. Yeah. But if you are just born into the world and you already know, you know, how how mu- how much faster could things advance? True. But then at the same time, I mean, that's what, that's the other thing I want to know
0: about this. Is this something that has to develop in them? You know, I, as you're describing it, I'm sitting here thinking, what do you do with when you're a four-year-old Hajira? Mm-hmm. I mean, do do you have all of that memory there to draw on all, all automatically already? It makes or- the talk a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, is it? Maybe it's something that, you know, when, when, because they're human, Mm -hmm. they're human. They're just, there's something different about them, but at their core, they're human. Maybe when they hit puberty or something like that, maybe that's when that, that genetic memory starts to kick in when it's a time when uh, an adolescent is able to begin dwelling on those things and, and, and using it, using that knowledge.
1: Well, didn't they say in the episode that if you, if you teach a hygienic to read, then the next one is born literate. Did they say that? I'm, 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 I am I'm missed that detail. Well, I mean, basically, the, they, they don't have to teach the next generation how to read. They know how. And I don't know if they are just, they just come right out and are reading,
0: or, you know, I mean... How weird was that if your infinite, infant opens its eyes and starts talking to you at the same time? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know.
1: I mean, there are still too many um, developmental issues and things
0: that have to yeah. be addressed first. I, I'm just thinking if you take the conventional human mind mm-hmm. and apply this to it, while, yes, it's a fantastic concept and would would solve a lot of problems that we that we recognize and limitations in our own lifespans, while it would solve that problem, yeah, I, I – Considering how the human brain develops, it, it seems like it would have to be a timed release type thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, but then again, as it's, you're right, as it's presented, it it seems like it's there from the very beginning, from the get go. So, I mean,
1: are they born, not saying that they can physically do it because there's not the strength, but are they born knowing how to walk and are they born knowing
0: how to talk?
1: Well see that's the and thing. And then physically they have to catch up
0: to it? Yeah, that's what I'm getting at is, is as an infant, you you are physically incapable yeah. of doing things that a five year old or a ten year old or a fifteen or twenty year old is capable of doing. Right.
1: Just because they evidently know how to read, they can't even hold up their own neck. So they're not going <laughs> to yeah. be able to prop up a book and yeah. read. Yeah. Uh their eyes can't focus. You know, they say a baby, a newborn baby, can only see what, just a couple of feet. And
0: even then, it's, eh, it's yeah. not really. Yeah. So basically what we're arriving at is it's a great concept and could work, but it would have to develop with the the development of the child mm-hmm. into a full-grown Hejira. Okay.
1: Okay, so now this brings me to my next point. Okay. What is it that they remember? Is it actual memory or is it? How their ancestors remembered it. Um, I've been watching a series on Netflix called uh, Brain Games. Mm -hmm. Have you seen this? No. Okay. Well, one episode in particular that sticks out is um, they set up a scenario in which these people, um, unexpected to them, witnessed a crime. It was a setup. It wasn't real. But then they tested them to see what they remembered. Okay. Yes. And it was it was a whole panel of like eight or ten of them, and their their memory of this crime was just all over the board. It mm-hmm. was everywhere. It was all over the place.
0: Details are probably different. with Yeah. Different
1: people. And then yeah. when somebody would suggest something, even if it wasn't true, the other people would just kind of follow along. And say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's how it happened. That's right. Yeah. So you know, I'm wondering if. If these passed on memories, is it sort
0: of an eidetic memory, or is it how their father remembered it? Yeah, that's a good point, and and I think what we're looking at is I did it. Mm-hmm. because when we have the two that are reflecting back on one of their ancestors or grandparents or whatever it was, they are they're sharing the same memory. It's yeah. it's it's about two different people, but it is from a mutual point of view. So to me it sounds like Was something... it from
1: two different people?
0: I thought Yeah. It was the it was the, the, the uh the leader, uh Tiyama. It
1: was Tiyama and
0: Aaron And Aaron Their so brother, and brother and sister. Brother and sister, yeah. So they would have a the common ancestor, this grandfather, if that's who it was. True. So what you're saying is that point of view would be shared by the progeny. I I would think so. Okay i yeah I guess, yeah, it's a valid point. I mean, what they would
1: have both though they would have their grandfather and their grandmother's memory
0: but but let's go to the the funeral okay. at the funeral. Aaron is recounting different people, and I don't think they were all directly related, no, but he's relating different things about those people, and everyone there seems to be in agreement with the the thoughts that he's expressing well,
1: sure. I mean, it, that happens even in our universe. Uh, if you have a funeral, oftentimes the, the one officiating the funeral will ask the family, you know, stories or
0: things that that person did in their lives. And- but is, is he recounting observed uh, or, or related situations that perhaps all of them have heard, or is he relating memory from these individuals? Well, there is no rem- memory passed on from them, is there?
1: <laughs> no, we're talking about real life now, Ethan.
0: I was <laughs> <laughs> still talking about the funeral. Uh, oh, okay. In the in right, show. Okay, okay. In okay. show. And I, and I just realized that yeah, there, there is no memory for them to have passed on yet. They died. Mm-hmm. Okay, so scratch that. Well, just because they died didn't mean that they didn't have any children.
1: True. And so maybe some of their children were present. That one was his mother. Oh, yeah, that's right. So... Yeah. You know, so, of course, he would have had uh, memories. Yeah. And, you know, I guess kind of going back to what I was saying earlier about uh, passing on knowledge from generation to generation, it it would really only be so helpful. Um, I guess if somebody achieves their greatest accomplishments before they are in their mid-20s or 30s, then those things would be passed on. But... Usually, people don't achieve greatness until they are past their childbearing years. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's true. And 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 we know, and from what they said in the episode, that they they remember everything up to the point of their birth.
0: So I guess they even remember their in utero years. <laughs> that would be weird. That's yeah, yeah, and that comes back to that whole thing of. Yeah, some information, good. Mm-hmm. Other information, maybe not so useful. Yeah.
1: Okay, now, and I, I keep coming back around to this, but now, again, what do they remember? Because do they remember... He says... Arn says that they remember everything up to uh, their birth. Yeah. Does that include all of those years that we as humans naturally lose? Say those years before, you know, like, say... One and two years of age. I, I remember some things that, you know, when I was probably um, three going on four, I I can actually remember further back, I think, than most people. But even then, it's just very, very quick glimpses of things, uh, very hazy memories of things. Um, four years old, I'm starting to remember things better. From five on, I can remember all kinds of stuff. But yeah. But... So, I mean, are they able to remember those things, like even from previous generations when they were two years old? Do, do they remember sitting in the
0: in the in their? Well, as I was going to say they don't have to. You are looking at basically, you are looking at your parents. You 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 draw everything from them mm-hmm. at the moment of birth. Now, what have your parents seen? They've seen the grandparents, and the grandparents have seen their grandparents, mm-hmm. and, and so it's. <clears throat> Wow, this is it is a broad topic and you could go a lot of dir- a lot of directions with it because you're not getting direct memory from someone else's brain necessarily. Some of those uh reflections of your grandparents are through your parents' eyes. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, maybe those maybe those quasi memories from an infant, maybe that is something that's just it's kind of forgotten because it's not as clear as some you know, very distinct memories from the older generations. Okay. Through through their eyes, through their perspective. But they are getting those years still from the viewpoint of their grandparents. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. No, that is yeah, that that, that makes sense to me. Okay. That's wild. And I hope it makes sense to the listener too. If not, just move on to the next segment. <laughs> <laughs> so I was actually interested um in Dylan's point of view. Uh, he has this kind of this existential moment in which he's reflecting on his inaction in regards to the long night and the beginning of the long night. Mm-hmm. He makes the comment that one Nova bomb mm-hmm. and he could have prevented the long night from happening. It, I, I think we've kind of established in this first season already mm-hmm. that the long night was going to happen. Yeah. Whether Dylan was involved in it or not. It's kind of an interesting and maybe a little self-centered point of view <laughs> that he thinks that with one Nova bomb, he could have ended the, the Nietzschean rebellion. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think that that is entirely true. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, I, like I said, we've already kind of established that there were cracks in the veneer right. with the old Commonwealth. Right. So if not the Nietzscheans at the moment when it did happen, then something else could have taken place. Or would have taken place, and probably still would have been the Nietzscheans. They had been planning this for
1: years. Yeah, uh, can you can you plan an entire rebellion and count on your the first stage of this rebellion being a success? And if it's if it if it works, then you're going to win. If it fails, then the whole thing.
0: Nietzscheans don't think that way. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. Um, but what I come come around to in, in this thought is, you know, Dylan is thinking about he didn't act. He didn't act. And, and I think it's a great premise for having this episode. He takes on this mission. He ditches the relief effort and leaves that to Becca because he's going to take action. Mm-hmm. And he's he's reflecting on his own inaction in times past. So he's going to take action in this particular instance, mm-hmm. even if it involves getting involved in an indigenous culture and providing weapons and opposing sides and you know that there's that whole political (laughs) thing that comes up in 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 the world in which we live Mm -hmm. today so you got that whole discussion but you know he we really get a kind of a glimpse into dylan and the fact that he can't sit still if he sees a perceived injustice he has to act he Mm -hmm. has to he has to take action on it now because it's cost him too much in times past And I thought that was an interesting little tidbit that we get about Dylan. Mm
1: -hmm. And, of course, he wasn't the only one that took action. Um, Also, Thaddeus Blake took action. Yes, he did. So uh, I was kind of curious to see what your thoughts were on that as far as him uh, taking all of the Force
0: lances and and destroying them. Well, he's a man of conviction. Mm -hmm. Uh, We see that very early on. He's also a man that doesn't have answers. Um, Wayism uh, has defined his existence. But it doesn't give him the answers to handle situations that he finds in. In particular, this situation in which he finds himself. Mm-hmm. He's looking for outside help, but he's also wanting to shape what that help is going to what form that help is going to take mm-hmm. and he thinks that by hiring an outside army he can preserve the hezira well, that's not how it pans out, and so instead of letting things develop, he takes action in this case, a very extreme action, and ultimately it leaves everyone in a bad position, and then he dies <laughs> <laughs> so i I mean. I guess what we learn about Thaddeus Blake is that he's a man of conviction, and you can't fault him for that. But he's also a zealot, <laughs> mm-hmm. and it leads to some poor decision-making. I don't know. that. It, it, that's kind of what I'm drawing from from the character.
1: I guess one of the things you, – you touched on it. One of the things that, that kind of puzzles me about the whole thing is that he's willing to call in a cavalry – and these big guns to come in and take care of this problem. But then when it comes to these actual, um, these, these other Wayists here on Serendipity, um, he doesn't want them to use any of the Force themselves. But he is willing to allow violence to happen to protect them. But then when he's confronted with battle he says he takes the he takes the road of faith and says that that is going to prevail over everything. My question is why did he ever even call Dylan in the first place? Yeah, why did he contact Rev bim if he was so sure and he's willing to stand down uh, stand out there on the front line of battle praying that the faith is that the that the divine is going to take care of all of this yeah. Why, why did he ever need to contact Dylan? I mean, we got a cool show out of it, I guess. But other than that, you know, why did – why can't he just stand on a hilltop there on Serendipity and then just – hope for the
0: best. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, and that's the, that's the point that I'm, I I probably didn't express it properly, but that's why I did. I probably, was. I was just absorbed in your own thought. Yeah. Yeah. I I watch your lips move and wait for my turn to talk. (laughs) Wow. So that's how this works then. Okay. No, what I was trying to say is, is he's a pacifist and he wants the Hajira to be pacifists, but he doesn't know how to preserve them. Mm -hmm. So he reaches out to a friend that he's heard has powerful friends. So maybe they can bring the force to preserve them. And you you were mentioning that he's willing to allow that violence to take place to preserve the innocence of the Hajira. And so that he can maintain his own pacifism. But then it all goes sideways and he loses his head. And and so, I mean, it's... We're starting to come around to the discussion, in in my opinion, of, of what we think about this episode. Okay. What we see in this character is he's pitiable because he's a pacifist. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's ultimately what I took out of this.
1: Well, I mean, and that's – I'm sure that's just a wayism thing. That's not necessarily just Thaddeus Blake because we've also seen this characteristic before in, in Rev Bim. When they're in combat, he won't engage in, he won't fire the guns, Yeah, but he'll man the sensors, uh, things like that. Yeah. Uh, we've talked about that before. And even in this case, violence and fighting is definitely not Rev Bim's first choice. He seems a little bit more willing to let it happen, even in regard to the Hygera. Not necessarily that he's rooting for them to
0: fight, but... This is their decision to make. He's okay with it. Yeah, to make for them to yeah. make that decision, even
1: knowing that they are wayists yeah. too. Yeah, it, we're not talking about just a a human colony. And hey, it's their choice if they want to fight. No, these are these are people that share our faith. Yeah, and if they want to make the decision to fight for for their place, that's their decision to make. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's theirs.
0: Yeah, and and, and like you're saying, we've already seen that Rev Bim. He has a tendency toward pacifism. Mm-hmm. Avoid violence, if at all possible. I think he even says that to Dylan, doesn't he? Fight if you must. Kill if you must. Mm-hmm. Um, he won't kill, but he'll bend the rule on pacifism a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, spraying that Magog juice <laughs> in the face of people, it's yeah. a violent act. <laughs>
1: and you know what? I, I couldn't quite... Maybe you... Got a better look at this. I couldn't quite get a clear look on exactly what Rev Bim did. But you say he bends the rules. But I'm kind of wondering if Rev Bim kind of broke that rule in this one. Because when, when he and Dylan come rushing up on the slavers, right before he sprays the one with the Magog juice, I it looked to me like he snuck something in his back. Mm. And I don't know if he actually impaled him. Or stabbed him, or just, or just hit him. But either way, hitting, violent act,
0: yeah, stabbing, maybe definitely less, violent, yeah, act.
1: less severe than
0: stabbing, <laughs> but
1: still, I mean, it is a, it, it's still an act of forceful violence.
0: Yes, forcing your will. I think, I think ultimately, what we're seeing here is that within Wayism, you have degrees of, of, uh, conscience. You have degrees of conscience. Okay, Already, there are different ways of interpreting some of the sacred texts that apparently they hold or the tenets that they hold dear. Well,
1: you would have to. I mean, with all of the different um, religious texts and teachings that they draw their faith from, um, you know, there are a lot of themes that are consistent that run throughout those different uh,
0: religions. But they're definitely not the same. Right, right. So, yeah, if you're blending them, yeah, you're going to have different degrees mm-hmm. of conscience. And and the Hegira are on one level. They're okay with defending their territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rev Bim, avoid fighting until it becomes absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. And then you have Thaddeus Blake who walks, uh, what was, what would could you equate it to the mountain path? <laughs> I don't know. It's pretty close. <laughs> pretty darn close. Yeah. Avoid violence and do not bend that rule Mm -hmm. and, and try to stop violence whenever you see it. Right. Even if it takes a, as Rev Bim says, kind of a violent act to, (laughs) to prevent violence. Yeah. You know, it was pretty medieval on his part. (laughs) Yeah, it was, it was. So yeah, you've got different levels of conscience in here. And, uh, yeah, it's interesting to see how Wayists uh, would reconcile that within the different the different groupings. You
1: know, Rev Bim in the past has talked about uh, his, quote, mother mm-hmm. and Kingfisher and yeah. how his existence came to be. It was interesting to see in this episode. I don't remember seeing anything like this before, but he carries a picture of his mother host. Yeah. So you get the sense that uh, we we see that Thaddeus Blake is there at Kingfisher, and he's the one that intercedes here and converts many of these Magog uh, to Wayism. This has got to be extremely early on in his life. Yeah. Because he's still around close enough to understand who his mother was and actually be able to take a picture. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that may have been laying around her dwelling somewhere there but you know he was able to to get a picture yeah and so now he carries this with him um i guess sort of as a constant reminder and so i I can't imagine that he would have taken this before his conversion this had to have been after his conversion so it, it would make sense that it was extremely early in his life When he met up with Mr. Blake here.
0: But as we've already established, the Magog developed very quickly. Oh, yeah. So maybe not so long uh, a time. You know, maybe maybe in those weeks that it takes for him to reach kind of the, uh, I don't want to call it adulthood. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I guess it kind of is full growth, whatever the case may be. Mm So yeah, potentially just a few weeks. And then while he's running around, you know, Partying with the other Magog on Kingfisher, you know he gets to see this uh, this crazy monk wade into a group of Magog and convert some of them, mm-hmm. him included. Right?
1: <laughs> you know that's kind of interesting about the Magog too. It seems like um, to this point, what we what little we have seen of them, there was the the video in Harper Two and we've seen a lot of the um, the way that that Rev Bim and others describe the behavior of the Magog. And we even see it in this episode—the way they just act like ferocious, ravenous animals, and they just come out claws and teeth out and just attack, and the growling and and everything and the snarling and. But it seems like there is
0: much, much more to them than just that. Yeah, I, that's. I was alluding to that earlier in yeah. our conversation. Well, so you, we ha- you
1: you spoke about you were saying specifically. Um, Spiritually speaking, yeah, yeah, and, and and while this is definitely included, let me take included. a step back. Okay, okay, let
0: me take a step back. Maybe not necessarily spiritual. Maybe they don't have a spiritual side to them necessarily, but there's a recognition for leadership. Yeah, maybe maybe that's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, uh, so someone wades into the middle of them, shows a lack of fear, that piques their interest, begins. Telling them about Wayism, it gives them a tenet to hold to. Maybe, maybe they have a, a predisposition for that because now we have was it Brandenburg Tour, the the occurrence on Brandenburg Tour, there was some mm-hmm. sort of leadership that was holding sway mm-hmm. over the Magad. Yeah, I, I'm just saying maybe what we've seen so far is they have a tendency to follow right,
1: and. And I guess what I'm trying to get around to is the fact that they're intelligent. Yes, we can see that when you get deeper into in their 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 interactions, especially with each other and with these leader figureheads, there's there is definitely a level of higher intelligence going on here. Yeah, they're not just ravenous, vicious animals.
0: Yeah. Unless they're in ravenous, vicious animal attack mode. Well, you know, I mean, I, I don't know what the level of intelligence is for a shark, but they seem fairly aloof and reserved and observant
1: mm-hmm.
0: until the feeding frenzy starts. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then it's just bite and snatch at whatever is available out there mm-hmm. as a group. So maybe that's, is that maybe kind of what we're looking at here? I, I think yeah. Yeah, here's something else. Is this the first time we've heard another Magog speak? Besides Rev Dim? I think so, yes. Yeah. yeah. So that, I thought that was interesting mm-hmm. as well. And, you know. How, how much of that was genetic memory versus. Yeah, see, Is that's that natural the other part, Magog
1: development? That's the other part that I'm wondering about is do they just come out knowing how to talk because their yeah. mother and father knew how to talk? <laughs> and once they're able yeah. to physically form the words and have the strength to do that, the intel is already there. It's just a matter of. Can Actually you being it or yeah, not? Yeah. physically being able to do it. So. Yeah. Hmm. And uh suddenly we find that uh a Nietzschean is jealous of a magog. <laughs> yeah, I thought
0: that was an interesting play there at mm-hmm. the end. Yeah. I thought that was pretty neat that I, Yeah. Because isn't that what Tyr wants? Oh yeah. He wants a family. Mm-hmm. He wants to be uh the founder of something significant. Right. And here's Rev, gets it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, on a visit to a, a little backwater colony, you know. I'd like to
1: have also seen Tears' conversation with Dylan, having turned the opportunity down. Yes. Yeah. So you had a chance to pass on your genes and, and establish memory. something. Yes, establish something that was going to be powerful yeah. for these people.
0: Influential.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, all of that high guard training mm-hmm. and everything that Dylan has, all of his experience in dealing with people and and fighting and just everything. And, and he said, no, no,
0: thank you. Yeah. But see, um, I, I think that that's the interesting the dichotomy between those two points of view. Tier would no doubt have taken that opportunity. Mm-hmm. But Dylan took the, the stance of, why don't you teach that?
1: Mm-hmm. Why don't you
0: take the opportunity to relate that? Directly um, by teaching Mm -hmm. instead of just by some trick of the genes. However, that got started instead of just passing it along. Why not take, you know, become a teacher.
1: Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, so let's uh, this brings us to our, our quote for the episode. Only those born guilty recognize innocence for what it is. The rarest thing in the universe and the most precious. Uh, this quote was actually from The Anointed, the Finder of the Way, Commonwealth Year ninety seven ninety nine.
0: Well, uh, my thoughts on it, if I go first on okay, this, yeah. I, I think <clears throat> it is something that you and I and everyone probably listening to this podcast is something that we can identify with. Mm-hmm. We are all guilty of something. Mm-hmm. There is all, there, we all have a skeleton in our closet or a regret in our past. That when we think back on it, we're just like, I wish I was smart enough to have avoided that altogether. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I wish I hadn't been that dumb mm-hmm. to do whatever that thing is. And we and we have those regrets. Care to share? Uh, not right now. Okay. No. Um, here's a race of people that if, if a mistake is made, they know about it. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows about it. <laughs> and it becomes so much easier to avoid that same mistake. That's a great thing. So, for a person, like it says here, born guilty, a person that has those regrets, what the Hajira have is a very precious commodity. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it could potentially be the ability to live your life without regret. You may have the memory of someone else's regret, <laughs> but it's not your regret. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sometimes that is a, uh, sometimes that's a huge weight that regret that we carry with us from time to time. Um, so, yeah, you know, to to be able to, to have and then maintain that innocence, that is something that's precious. And it's something that is so rarely seen today, at least in the world that we live in.
1: I still don't think it's possible. I mean, just because you know that a mistake that you may possibly make, I mean, do you ever make a mistake knowing that it's a mistake? Uh, okay, well. <laughs> Okay, yes, but but do you – in your mind, you usually find a way to rationalize it. Yes. Okay, yeah. you say, okay, this probably isn't the best thing I should do, but this is what I'm
0: going to do because blah, blah, blah. The wife is asked if this dress makes her fat. <laughs> do I be honest here or not? I'm going to go with honesty. No. <laughs> Regret. <laughs> no. That's just an example. It doesn't yeah. actually happened.
1: Yeah. See, even if you in do while. lie, because then, because <laughs> then you know, when your kids are five years old, and they have the they have the memory of that. Yeah. They're like, oh hey, remember that time when Dad said you looked good? He was lying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess your most more. I think about this. This genetic
0: memory thing is just terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it potentially could be disastrous.
1: Yeah. Anyway, I kind of I, I I I think I may have jump the track on this a little bit um what was i talking about uh, purposefully yeah.
0: making mistakes
1: yeah. well i mean i don't know that you sometimes i guess you but but that but they're called mistakes right they're not something that you you do choose to do these things all right all these things that we have in our past that we regret we wish we hadn't done well okay at
0: the time a true mistake is something that you do because you don't have the experience or the understanding to avoid a misstep. Yeah. It, if somebody else has done that before you and you have that to draw on, it is far less likely that you're going to make that same misstep or mistake. And that's what I'm saying. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't absolve them. I mean, they're probably still just like you and I. On their own, on the fly, they may make a, a wrong decision. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the things that you know we as human beings come back to and the mistakes that we come back to making generation after generation, yeah uh, maybe that kind of filters itself out after a time I mean you're talking about a whole race of wayists. yeah <laughs> there's a there's a level of peace yeah uh, uh, and freedom from a lot of the disruptions that mankind kind of has to deal with right okay. now. Okay. I don't know if I'm making my point with that. No, yeah,
1: know. yeah, I kind of see that. I guess I'm just thinking, of you know, there. You, sometimes you have different kinds of people. Some people can look at the mistakes that other people have made and see the consequences that resulted, and then they're able to make a better decision based on something they haven't personally experienced. True. There are other people who continue to make the same mistakes over and over and over and over again. Yeah.
0: Contrarians.
1: So, you know, I guess it just kind of depends on what kind of people these yeah. people are. I mean, maybe maybe there are some that are great, and there's others that just, you know, man, what is that guy's deal? Doesn't he remember a great, 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 great grandfather going through that?
0: I Uncle mean, Bob, man, that guy. <laughs> yeah, we eventually had to put him out of the walls, outside the walls.
1: <laughs> and I, I'm sorry, I kind of, I kind of hijacked that. From you, no, that's fine. But I'm just, yeah, I guess it's possible that they they would be able to to learn from those past mistakes a little bit better.
0: Well, to me, that just seems like the whole point of the genetic memory, the whole advantage of the genetic memory would be to avoid Mm -hmm. making those imperfect, improper, wrong decisions that we make, (laughs) you know, because of lack of experience.
1: Yeah, I I guess it, it couldn't hurt. Can, can I can I say that?
0: Am I saying that I wish we had genetic memory? No <laughs> No. Uh, not. There, there are other ways that could probably be a better cho- a better method of handling mm-hmm. I could think of.
1: Well, I guess um, for me, when I look at this quote, I, I can't help but consider um, the the one who uttered these words, yeah and this is this is the anointed the finder of the way who was a magog mm-hmm. and so he here he's he's saying that only those who are born guilty recognize innocence for what it is i mean who who has more guilt than uh, a Magog who recognizes what as what they have done and, as, as being terrible.
0: Yeah, and if I could interject, you know, this statement from the anointed really, to me, kind of highlights the fact that, at least in the case of some Magog, they may have a recognition of a spiritual need, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. is what I'm getting to, because they recognize we come from a bad place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so maybe we need to look more towards uh, some sort of a redeeming quality considering our background and where we have come from Mm -hmm. and so i
1: wonder on the flip-flop of that though is is this also saying that uh the hygera don't recognize innocence for what it is i mean here they are they're willing to throw their innocence out the window and learn how to fight and kill and they do they do learn how to fight, and they do kill, mm-hmm. and that's going to stay with their people for for the rest of the foreseeable future, as long as they continue to have this genetic memory passed down. Yeah,
0: and, and I think going forward, I think what we're going to—if we were to revisit this planet mm-hmm. a year from now or five years from now. <clears throat> I think what we'd we'd see is that the Hegira have a better appreciation for their innocence. Because Ejun makes the comment that they are sheep in a universe full of predators. So he recognizes that they are in a a unique position, and they are kind of helpless. But now they have these Magog protectors Mm -hmm. that are potentially going to keep them shielded so that that innocence could be preserved. And and I think, going forward, you would see the Hajira race grow a greater appreciation for for their uniqueness in the universe and their innocence.
1: Yeah, but their innocence is already lost. I mean, they already put a spear right through a man. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you can't unsee that. Right. But you could learn from it. Yeah. So what is this, a, a
0: secondary innocence? Uh Wow! Yeah, well, now we're going into a whole philosophical <laughs> <laughs> discussion that I am not prepared for at oh, this late is it, in the evening. Isn't
1: that what we do here? <laughs> yeah. But but they yeah. but again, coming back to the quote, they weren't born guilty; they were born innocent. Yeah. So maybe that's why they're willing to fight for it and give it up is because they they don't they don't recognize it as being this rare and precious thing. Yeah. Whereas. The crazy Thaddeus Blake does. <laughs> I mean, yeah. as crazy as he was, it was something that he understood that they had, yeah. and he maybe that's why he wanted to protect
0: it so much because he understood what they had, even if they didn't. Yeah, I think that's that is kind of the main thrust uh, uh, of this episode is that for for Thaddeus's failings, mm-hmm. he did recognize the importance of, of what the Hazira had. Yeah. All right, well, let's go ahead and rate it. What did you think of this episode? Um, I think the episode was well done. I think it was well written. It was well uh, presented. The thing is, though, with me, is that this episode, it does what so much of sci-fi does. It takes the person that has the high ideal, in this case, resisting violence. Mm -hmm. That's the high ideal. Yeah. But ultimately, it takes it down to the point to where... It's an ideal that cannot be held to, that right. violence is a necessity in the universe. Mm-hmm. In order, If you want to survive, you have to act. You have to defend yourself. And, and so in, in this episode in, in Andromeda, and, and we've seen it repeated in Star Trek and in, in other genres, um, it per- portrays pacifism and the the wanting to remain innocent it kind of portrays that as an almost as an undesirable quality mm-hmm. and it makes persons that want to hold to that it makes them appear weak or at the very least uh crazy crazy mm-hmm. or duped yeah you know easily duped naive it it puts them in a negative light mm-hmm. and I think that's kind of a message that if you ever really want the world to change if you ever want to believe in a nonviolent world you have to you have to start changing that perception if more people held to the idea of not picking up a sword or an axe or a gun or whatever the case the more people that didn't do that the less violent the world would be but most people what most people want to believe is that if you don't pick it up then you'll be killed, and the person that is holding the gun, they're the ones that are going to prevail. And that is an idea that is probably not ever going to be rooted out of man (laughs) in his current (laughs) existence, Uh you know? You you follow what I'm saying? And and so it's a great ideal. It holds it up there. That's Yeah, boy, we wish we could all be that way. Don't we wish the universe was a nonviolent place? But yeah, we're going to have to fight to survive. (laughs) And I, and it's such a letdown mm-hmm. to see that play out yet again in another sci-fi episode of whatever Andromeda, Star Trek, you know whatever it is that you happen to be watching. Yeah. And so for that reason, it detracts a lot from my appreciation of this episode. And so ultimately, while it is well presented uh, at the end, I'm just I'm kind of saddened by it. Okay. And therefore, uh, I, uh, maybe my appreciation for it isn't as great as other episodes that I've seen in this first season so far. Okay, I can I can see that,
1: and I can respect that. I feel like I just need to say one more time
0: that I really hate Jaren <laughs> <laughs> That was the, that was totally last week or two weeks ago now, two yeah. week episode, episodes ago. That's right. It was <laughs> still still hung on
1: that. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> like that i just don't know if i got my point across um but you know i guess there's a couple of things that i always go back to when i think about did i like this episode or what did i think of this episode uh the first one being that back when this show first aired in 2001 did i see it and do i remember seeing it and i do remember this one um there were a, a lot of things uh, in this episode that really stuck out the very first time I watched it. And and so when I knew that this one was coming up, I was looking forward to it. Um, the whole idea of the genetic memory, it stuck with me. And I don't know, my children may remember it too, because it was before they were born. <laughs> yeah. Um, it stuck with me that much. And so I was totally fascinated with that idea. Um, even as problematic as it could be yeah. as we've discussed uh i i still thought it was a really cool idea and if there's some way that we could make it work i'm not saying i'm on board but i would i would find it interesting i might i might look into it
0: that's one way of describing it
1: <laughs> <laughs> and and then just with all of the the wayism stuff and learning about how uh, all that came about um that's a, that's a pretty big part of this universe that we're learning about. And so I thought that that, that was value in this episode. The other thing that I always go to, of course, is, you know, how does it fit into the overall story arc? And, and I'm not really sure that it does, uh, other than giving us other glimpses of things, um, like I mentioned already about the wayism
0: yeah.
1: and things like that,
0: it, it and, does expand our universe, our understanding of yeah. this universe that we're watching, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and uh, and but as far as carrying on the story of the what happens next, um, I'm not sure that it's a real, extremely important episode. Yeah, uh, the subplot. On the Andromeda, I was not interested in that at all. At all, Without not anything, even a little bit. About it. <laughs> the only thing that I found interesting that happened on the Andromeda was the conversation between Tier and Rev Bim Nitty. at Nitty. the very Nitty. end, yeah. exactly. And, um, but it was also nice that there was something going on there. Yeah, there was still some development. There was still Becca having to take charge of a situation. Um. And even though she was kind of doing some shady stuff on one side, she still did a good thing on the other side. Yeah, and she she got she she met with Dylan's approval.
0: And little fan bugs will be named after her in tier, so that's wonderful. That's isn't great, it? and that's really all <laughs> tier wants, right? <laughs> Children named after him. <laughs> yeah, there you go.
1: But you know, I, I, so really, when I think about this episode, I don't think about the subplot. I pretty much completely forget about it. Um, but I do find. The, whole, the main plot, very memorable yeah. and, and very interesting. And so for that, I have to say that I, I hold this episode up pretty high. I, I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed watching it. I was looking forward to watching it, knowing what it was. Um, there have been a few that knowing what it was, I was like, Oh, I really have to watch this one again. <laughs> and then a lot of times I was pleasantly surprised by the things that we were able to, to get out of it. Yeah. Um this one wasn't one of those. I I was I was very much looking forward to watching this one. And the- and and I and it held up. To my memory of it,
0: yeah, and, and I'm not faulting you because you're absolutely right. There is a lot to hold on to in this episode, and and you know what? Ultimately, this is probably one that I would recommend that somebody new to Andromeda definitely have on your lo- on your list to mm-hmm. look at. It's just I when I at the end of this conversation, as I sit down and think about the messages that we've seen or that we've that we've gotten out of this, ultimately I'm left with a sense of I'm kind of disappointed mm-hmm. in in the moral that it is kind of pointing toward. Yeah. And so for that reason, it, it, it detracts from my appreciation of it.
1: Well, I mean, you also got to consider who is this, what audience is this made for? Um, oh, yeah. Who are the people making it? I mean, is it is it for people that are particularly um, religious-minded or more scientific-minded?
0: More secular, definitely.
1: So, I mean, you know, it is kind of to be expected. Yeah. Really, and and I see your point. You you have you present something and say this is uh, a very powerful uh, way of living. Way um,
0: <laughs> I see what you did yeah. there,
1: and and the faith and and how this is able to to overcome, but in the end it doesn't. Right. So you know you you can see how building something up like that so much and then just tearing it right down. At least for Thaddeus Blake. Yeah, um, because with with faith, there is there's also got to be a level of
0: reason. True. Yeah. And that's we didn't even get into that part of the discussion. <laughs> but yeah, and he was not balanced. Yeah, he was not reasonable for for certainty. So and,
1: and you know, that's just that's a whole nother conversation. That's probably for we, another. We could um, go
0: another 30 minutes on that at least yeah. probably. But
1: uh, we don't have time. You're right. Yeah, people, you're right. I, we don't. People are starting to to hit their next button on their <laughs> on their media players right now. What's so. on
0: this American Life <laughs> this week?
1: You know what I'd really like though? What's that? I would really like to hear from our listeners. I would too. We haven't got. We haven't had enough of that. Not a whole lot. No. So no. I. We encourage the listeners to get in touch with us. Let us know what you think. Um, how do you feel about the show? What do you think about some of the shows that we've covered and our views on them? And maybe some upcoming shows? And maybe we can include your thoughts in our discussion. We'd, I'd like to do that. Uh, be critical. Yeah, but be nice. Sure We'd appreciate that too. If they're, if they're critical, <laughs> um, I'll probably throw them away. and if they're nice, I will read them on the air. Ooh, maybe. Unless they're just really gushingly and obnoxious, annoyingly
0: nice. Dripping with Velveeta. (laughs) We don't want that.
1: No. Um, If somebody did want to get a hold of us, Ethan, how would they do so?
0: They could do so at DriveBackTheNightPodcast at gmail.com.
1: We're also on the social medias. We're on Twitter and Facebook using the handle Andromeda Pod on both of those places. Our home is Podbean,
0: www.andromedaseries.podbean.com. And you can also listen to us and subscribe on iTunes. And if you do so, be sure and leave a review. Give us some stars. We'd certainly appreciate it.
1: We thank our friend Tim Kimmerly for giving us his voice in the opening quote. We are an Age of Geek production, www.ageofgeek.com. And we hope that you will join us back here again next week. We do plan to be back next week. Yes, we do. (laughs) As we consider the episode The Honey Offering.